Welcome to 2020 Hindsight, where we look back at old classic college football games and break them down, revisit how we remember them versus what actually happened, and have some fun along the way. So the idea for this podcast came from Bill Simmons' Rewatchables podcast, where they sort of do the same thing to movies that can be watched over and over. We hope to have some fun here. So my name's Will Miles. You can find me on Twitter at WillMilesSEC or at my website, ReadAndReaction.com. With me is co-host Nick Knudsen. You can find Nick on Twitter at Nick Knudsen FB, writing at Read and Reaction or at his website, American Football Stories. So, Nick, you know, normally I'd ask you a football question at this point, but uh, had some nuptials this past week, man. You're a married man off the market. Yeah, yeah, went through. Uh, the girl's happy that it finally happened. We had an interesting year planning weddings, so we landed on our third date of the year. We did family only and ended up having a great time. Well, so you're you're a little bit you're a little bit of a strange, I guess, mix of colleges, really, when you look at it, because you're sort of an Ohio State homer who happened to go to Florida. So the yeah. question, you know, we're talking about Ohio State versus Miami in 2003 for the Fiesta Bowl here, but you know, inquiring minds want to know when it's the Buckeyes versus the Gators, who are you going for? I have photographic evidence from the Fiesta Bowl against uh, Florida and Ohio State. I was sitting in the second row of the Ohio State section rocking my Florida jersey. It's, there's so much Buckeyes around us. There's so many Buckeyes around us. You could actually point me out on those, like, uh, the pictures with the full end zone. You know, you hang on the wall. You can find me and my brother, the two blue spots right in between it. It's tough to do, though, man. It's like rooting against family. I, all my family's from Ohio. I got, like, generations of uh, family that, like, either went to Ohio State or been going to games forever. So, Grew up with Buckeye football. That's how it happened. You really shouldn't feel bad for their poor life decisions there, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> so with the, with the coronavirus wreaking havoc on the 2020 season, we still want to provide everybody with content. We've been thinking about doing this during the offseason, but since the Big Ten and Pac-12 have, have maybe canceled, because as of this recording, they're talking about potentially coming back around Thanksgiving or something, which is – weird but you know so anyway it took on a little bit more urgency we're going to release new episodes on saturday mornings on patreon so you'll have something to listen to on college football saturdays if there aren't any games though it does look like the sec is going to play this year and then you know to access the podcast right away support us on patreon the links in the show notes that'll give you instant access um or you can wait until they're released to the general public the next week so you can also follow us on our youtube channel 2020 hindsight or subscribe on itunes to get notified of new episodes and please rate and review the show when you do so as I mentioned, Nick, we're, uh, we're going over Ohio State versus Miami Fiesta Bowl 2003, so the national championship game for the 2002 season. You know, the first thing we do on, on 2020 Hindsight is sort of talk about, you know, memories and, and calling it the memory serve segment where, you know, what did we forgot and what really jumped out at us? So, so what were your impressions when you first looked at this game? I remember Ohio State kind of jumping out to a, an early lead and hanging on. That's not really how the game played out at all. I mean, I know they had they had a 17-7 lead in the third quarter, but it was pretty fortunate that they had that lead. I mean, Miami kind of could really controlled the first half, and I, I kind of felt like it was like Miami kind of came in late, but it was really really an ugly game all the way around. It was not uh, it was not pretty football. I mean, the thing I really didn't remember was that Miami came into this with 34 straight wins. Mm-hmm. And they had won a national championship with Larry Coker the year before. Mm-hmm. And I remember Larry Coker driving that program, not necessarily into the ground, but, but into a sort of state of malaise. And I guess I sort of remembered Butch Davis being the one who builds it up. 
and then Larry Coker came in and immediately fell apart. But that wasn't the case with all the talent that Butch Davis had brought in. They had a couple of really good years, though. We'll get into it. There are some reasons why, uh, just from a coaching perspective, why Miami struggled under Coker. Yeah, and he not only did they win 34 straight, but that 2002 team, they were replacing uh, since the draft switched to a seven-round format in 1994. They had to replace 11 draft picks, including, I believe, was it five, five first-rounders? So just, you know, casual players like losing Brian McKinney, Jeremy Shockey, Philip Buchanan, Ed Reed, Mike Rumpf, no big deal. They loaded right back out and they trotted out some pretty high-level talent. But, I mean, this, this 0-2 team, you still had Andre Johnson, Vince Wilfork, Kellen Winslow, you know, Dorsey McGahee steps right in, Vilma, Antrell Roll. I mean, Sean Taylor didn't even get to him until the end. I mean, just incredibly talented roster. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't just Miami, though. So there were the 43 starters, mm-hmm. 37 of them were drafted in the NFL, 18 first-rounders in this game. So a considerable amount of talent on the field. You know, one of the things I had, I had forgotten, just because, you know, you, you watch college football, things change a little bit, and you look back and forget how things were. Obviously, this is the BCS. You had the number one versus the number two playing. But there were 40 days off for Ohio State before this game because they don't have any title games in the Big Ten the yet. No. And, and you just sit there looking at that going, how could that possibly be? Because the SEC's had those things in place since 1991, right? Yeah. And, and still nothing in 2002 for the Big Ten. It's amazing that they turned down that amount of money for as long as they did. It didn't have any title game, but it meant you had these bowl games where there was so much rust on both sides because you'd had 40 days off for Ohio State, pretty much a similar amount of time off for Miami coming in, having all that time to prepare, but then also all that time for the rust to build up. Yeah, they the Hurricanes had just as much rust coming in, but it really – what was interesting was the pregame buildup. I mean, Miami was a 12-point favorite. The, Ohio State was not expected to really be a, a competitive uh, – opponent for Miami they won six of their 13 games by a touchdown or less but the Buckeyes were a really they were a surprise team in 2002 they went six and six and eight and four in the last two years of John Cooper era at Ohio State and despite a 7-5 finish in 2001 for Jim Trestle there was really kind of a, a turning of the tide because Ohio State could not get over the hump against Michigan in the 90s a lot of my childhood trauma comes from those games uh, losses and undefeated seasons in 93, 95, 96. Ohio State goes in unbeaten with the chance of the national title, Rose Bowl on the line, loses to Michigan. So the fact that Ohio State followed through with an unbeaten season, took care of business against Michigan, and got to this game, it was pretty incredible. You had some exciting players on that uh, 2002 Ohio State team, aside from a fantastic defense. We'll, we'll get into some of the names as we talk, but really the stars of that team – uh, Chris Gamble played both both ways at uh, wide receiver and corner, who Buckeye fans will remember, but maybe nationally people don't remember as well. Long career, primarily with the Carolina Panthers. But Maurice Claret, freshman running back, absolute study, missed two games, and he still rushed over 100 yards seven times that season. Yeah, you know, I mean, the, the things that I – it's funny when you actually get into the get into the game the the things that it was such a different era i mean they had ohio state second in total defense but 88th in pass yards per game you couldn't get away with that these days i mean if you had a team that could actually pass the ball and pass the ball effectively you wouldn't be able to do it but again you had both teams under center um, both teams trying to establish a running game even though they really couldn't 
And I sort of remembered Ken Dorsey, Miami's quarterback, having a noodle arm. But it's interesting because in this game, his problem wasn't that he had a noodle arm. It was that he didn't have any touch. Like he was throwing the ball way too hard or throwing the ball way too far when he had a guy open. It's interesting to look back and think on, think about Dorsey. And I remember thinking at the time he didn't have the arm strength. But watching this game, it was more of a touch issue that everything came out just like, full bore and it meant that he couldn't drop it in on long passes it meant a couple of turnovers at different points in the game well he, he had only been sacked nine times in the season coming into this game and the Ohio State had him under constant pressure I'm sorry eight times they, they opened up with a sack in the game and that was the ninth time he had been sacked all season so it was the type of situation where he was under pressure he wasn't used to being under that kind of pressure too so he, he hadn't seen that kind of defense heading into the Buckeye game yeah. My other favorite part of this game was Dan Fouts. I mean, he's basically the exact same announcer in this game as he is in the water boy. I mean, <laughs> like, it was just great. Like all this, you know, we'll, we'll get into it, but it felt like every quarter, at least there was a Foutsism where you're like, you know, he's talking about Bobby Boucher out there. And uh, you know, so, so that, that was one of my favorite parts of rewatching was just getting to relive the Dan Fouts experience. I'm going to bring him up at the end. <laughs> So the storylines coming into the game, Miami is the defending champs. And you know, remember when Miami was great? It's been a while. And then Ohio State, Trestle with a chance to win a championship with John Cooper's players. And then Trestle lasted at OSU until 2010. Mm -hmm. But considering they got blown out by Florida in 2006, if he hadn't gotten this one, would his tenure have been very different? I mean, obviously this is year two is the storyline coming in. And, and he's trying to win the championship. But it is a little bit interesting looking back, you know, 18 years later and just sort of knowing what we know about that, about the program under Trestle and, and how he left the program, though, obviously, um, probably a minor scandal these days, considering minor. some of the stuff that goes on, yeah. but obviously yeah. a major scandal at the time with, uh, um, I can't remember his name. Tattoo Gate. <laughs> there you go. Tattoo With uh, Gate. Terrell Pryor. Terrell Pryor. That's what I was yeah. looking for. So, yep. you know, obviously that's how he leaves, but you get the one blowout and then the SEC starts taking over. And at that point, Trestle's offense, which, um, you know, obviously gets lauded for what happened in this game was really sort of antiquated by the time, by the time Trestle left. So it's just sort of an interesting look back to, to wonder what would have happened if he hadn't been able to get this game. Well, it is fun. It is funny watching this offense too, because he really did. I'd say 2003 by 2004, he started realizing this. Troy Smith comes into the program, and by 0506, they really start opening it up a little bit. But there's still that nature. They called it trestle ball, whereas it's, it's a conservative, conservative game plan. You know, play play mistake free football, play good defense, try not to turn the ball over. Your basic type of old school style of football. So it wasn't anything where you're trying to run up and down the field and outscore people. You're really just trying to just outplay people in, in, in the mistakes category, basically. And it worked. But I'll tell you what, you, you had to sweat out a lot of those games. It wasn't like a lot of like – so, and I think that kind of gives the perception. Miami comes in. I think they had won 25 of their 34 games by, you know, two or more touchdowns coming in so they were just a dominant force whereas Ohio State you know they're coming in overtime wins over Illinois needing a fourth down conversion against Purdue to get to the game just it gives you a different perception nationally especially during that BCS era where we talked about last week the phrase that was always used style points Ohio State wasn't big on the style points back then well but it turns out that if you go 
if you go undefeated, it doesn't really matter, right? Doesn't matter. And if you look, I mean, they beat Washington State. Now, that was at Columbus. But, you know, you beat a Pac-12 team or, at the time, Pac-10 team. Ranked 10th. They were ranked 10th when they played. Yep, coming across the country. They beat number 17, Penn State. They beat number 23, Minnesota. Number 12, Michigan. And then number one, Miami. So, when you look at what they were able to do, they were able to defeat some pretty good teams. But the win against Penn State was at home. The win against Minnesota was was at home. The win against Michigan was at home. The yeah. win against Washington State was at home. So that's really why I think you come in and say Miami's the favorite here. They haven't beaten anybody of any significance. And when they, you know, you mentioned the overtime win at, at Illinois, the mm-hmm. 10 to 6 win at Purdue, 19 to 14 at Wisconsin. So those sorts of, you know, those one score games typically don't always go the the way of the team eventually those catch up to you as mm-hmm. as most fans find out over time when they're relying on those sorts of things and and that just really wasn't the case for ohio state in 2002 no but uh karma's on their side you know they deserved it after all those losses in michigan and all those undefeated ruined seasons in the 90s it was time that the ball bounced your way Ugh. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's get to the actual game because if anybody knows me, they know that I hate Ohio State. So this one's tough. So I'm we'll, trying to I'm trying to lay it on thick for you. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll we'll do it for the Buckeyes fans here. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, my my impression on this when you rewatch it is that Miami lost this game in the first quarter. They were able to move the ball up and down the field, and they just really couldn't get over the hump. They'd only allowed eight. You mentioned they'd only allowed eight sacks to Dorsey all year. They allowed two on the first drive, so he wasn't really able to get comfortable. Um, you know, both offenses were under center, which is still pretty striking, even though we've seen. You know, it's interesting. We we've seen this in sort of previous incarnations of this podcast, but it's just so obvious that the shotgun's better. But the coaches stubbornly refused to do it back then. Um, you know, it's just sort of an interesting, interesting thing that's so striking when you watch the games. I, I thought the Ohio State offense especially, it just looked so disorganized those first few plays. You could just tell they were like, wow, these guys are fast. You could tell like they were just completely overwhelmed in the first part of the game. They, they went three and out uh, in their first two series, I believe. But it was like the defense would kind of give up a couple plays here or there and then they'd make a play and then slow Miami down. But, uh, yeah, you really not much scoring in the first quarter. Yeah, it was interesting because you looked at the stat that I cited earlier that Ohio State was 88th against the pass, and then they were basically, I think, second against the run and had the second overall defense. And Miami kept trying to get Willis McGahee going Mm -hmm. early, running the ball. First down, they ran almost every time on first down. It meant that it was third and 11, third and 12, third and 14, a lot. And, you know, (laughs) you mentioned that that Ohio State struggled. They didn't get their first first down until there were 28 seconds left in the first quarter. (laughs) I mean, good grief. So, and Miami had something like 135 yards or something in the first quarter. And just, they were able to get the ball in once. So, with about five minutes left in the first quarter, they had a big throw to Kellen Winslow, which is going to be a theme for this game, over the middle to the Ohio State 25, and then a touchdown to Roscoe Parrish over the middle on third and 12. Um, Ohio State was actually in a cover zero blitz, which I'm not entirely sure why they did that because um, that meant Dorsey couldn't overthrow his receiver. And all of a sudden, it's 7-0 Miami, and you think – and then Krenzel comes out on the next drive, goes deep. That was a terrible throw that gets intercepted by Sean Taylor, and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, it's about to be a route. And, you know, they were able to hold on. Yeah, the, on the on going back to the touchdown pass, yeah, that like you said, that was that cover zero. But you had Donnie Nicky, who was a great safety, timed his blitz very well, was beelining up the middle toward Dorsey, and at the last second, McGahee clips him, knocks him out of the way. Dorsey sidesteps him, 
and hits Parrish. But Parrish was covered by All-American safety Mike Doss. He didn't get beat a whole lot. So Parrish, it just showed you the speed Miami had, and it just you kind of sat there with a pit in your stomach watching that going, oh, boy, here we go. Here we go. And then and then Krenzel's throw was just atrocious. Taylor uh, stepped up, uh, tipped it to himself, and made, made a nice catch, but it was pretty easy ball to intercept. Yeah, well, it's interesting because after that interception, Ohio State – or I'm sorry, Miami had the ball pretty close to midfield. And they end up in third and 14 because they tried to run the ball twice. And then they get to the Buckeye 45 on a check down and decide to punt on fourth and five. And so there's two things there. One, they were in long third downs because they couldn't run the ball. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, is they wound up with a touchback on the punt. And I, again, I, I know things have changed a little bit since 2002, but if you want to be critical of, of Larry Coker, and I will be, um, you know, this is one of those things where it's just – he was so conservative in terms of what his game plan was in this game. And there was really an opportunity to step on the throat of Ohio state after the interception of Taylor. And he just didn't do it to run the ball twice, get stuffed twice, and then throw a check down and punt. Then the punt goes into the end zone. So it ends as a touchback. It's just, you know, I mean, it's malpractice. It it makes you appreciate how far coaching has come. Like, I mean, really just the fourth downs on the other side of the, of, of the if you're on the other side of the 50 and you're a fourth and manageable most coaches are going for it these days but really too you when you also factor in it just how bad the Ohio State offense was in that first quarter why wouldn't you go for that like why wouldn't you be a little more conservative the only thing I could defend with running early was Willis McGahee was a beast that year he was awesome so I I, I think they really hadn't seen him get shut down like that so that was like kind of I think they were trying to he kept feeding him hoping he would get going and that Ohio State defense was stepping up early. Well, and maybe they knew something we didn't know because if I if I say Miami lost the game in the sec, in the first quarter, um, I guess you could say Ohio State won it in the second quarter, though you could also say that Miami lost it in the second quarter as well because yeah. Ohio State looked terrible, though they did initially right at the start of the second quarter, they flipped the field position with a 63-yard punt. And these are those things that end up hidden in your memory. Like you just don't remember these types of things. Um, but special teams always plays a role in these championship games, especially when the, when the games are close and being able to flip the field with a 63 yard punt to the point where all of a sudden Miami was not just breathing down the throats in Ohio state territory again in the second quarter really made a huge difference. I actually wrote a note. Andy groom is a good punter (laughs) for Ohio state. He crushed the ball. That was, that was standard for him too. That wasn't even a big deal, but I remember the first quarter, they, they are the first possession, first play of the first quarter, just to reiterate how bad Ohio State was looking on offense. Krenzel and Claret just kind of crashed into each other, like, you know, bad news bears, little giant style. It looked like it was like from the little giants, and three green jerseys swarmed them in the backfield, one of which was Vince Wilfork, who obviously went on to become an NFL legend, but I mean, just shows the talent on that Miami defense. and how how badly Ohio State needed a play, and they got a play from their punter, of all people, to kind well, of flip and, things. Well, and then they got a big play on the next Miami drive. So mm-hmm. Dorsey just absolutely airmailed Roscoe Parrish. And, th- and in this case, Ohio State had actually played a zone, so they had guys back beyond – you know, it was basically – it was a similar route that they had scored the touchdown to Parrish on. Not the exact same, but a similar route. But they completely airmailed Parrish – or Dorsey completely airmailed Parrish. I have no idea where he was throwing the ball. And it ends up being an interception. And Ohio State all of a sudden is in Miami territory because of the punt and then because of the interception and the turnover. 
and all of a sudden Ohio State actually has some life down seven nothing without having been able to have done anything all game. But still, it's uh, you know for Miami to allow them to not only flip the field position but then to turn it over right there just really really tough for the Hurricanes. It was one of those throws too where you just if you were watching it live, you'd be like, did he throw it straight to him? Like it was like one of those baffling, where's he even going with that throw? It was right to Dustin Fox, who's a great corner there in Columbus for many years, but he, he gives Ohio state great field position, but the Buckeyes didn't capitalize. Will? no, but, but again, I, I think this actually does tell you the difference between Coker and Trestle yep. um, in sort of a nutshell. Right. So the quarterback draw was the only thing working for Ohio state, really the whole game. Um, and Krenzel wound up being their leading rusher at the end of the game. They end up at a third and 12 because they couldn't run the ball either. They, they get 11 on a quarterback draw, and then they don't convert on a fake field goal attempt. And normally you look at that and say, ooh, that's a really missed, that's a, that's a missed opportunity. But I do think that it said two things to Ohio, to Ohio State. I mean, Trestle was there to win the game, right? Mm-hmm. We're not going to go out there and just try to keep it close. We're going to actually try to win the game. And I think it's indicative that Trestle was willing to take risks while Coker was not. And a lot of the risks that Trestle took wound up paying off later in the game and Coker never took any. That That's exactly the way I saw that call too, because it's one of those calls where if they get it, the coach is, is a genius. Wow. Look at that call. And if they doesn't, the coach is an idiot, but I, I definitely think he watched his offense struggle for a quarter and a half. He watched Miami and he also calculated, we're not going to win this with field goals. Like, field goals aren't going to get it done. So, I like the aggressiveness. I think it just didn't work out on this occasion. Well, he also probably wasn't expecting Miami to turn the ball over 75 times. But he got, <laughs> but he got that in this game, too. Because so, on the next drive – The referees t- beat Miami. We all know this. <laughs> it wasn't Miami. They didn't do oh, anything. Oh, we'll get, we'll get to that, buddy. We'll they didn't get to do that. anything. It was the referees. Like, we'll, keep talking we'll, about Miami losing this game on the field. We all know what the truth is. Oh, we, we will get to this. Okay. So, I'm just, you, you've, been t- you've been blaming Miami a lot for their poor play. And I'm just like, I'm noticing a pattern. I want to make sure I'm correcting the narrative early. Oh, don't worry. I'm going to be okay. on Ohio State pretty soon. So, okay, good, good. So next drive, tipped pass, intercepted by Ohio State again. And this, like was, one where, this was one where Dorsey just threw a rocket to his receiver, maybe a foot above his head, and it tips right off of his hands. It's the same thing you see all the time where the quarterback doesn't have any touch. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I alluded to it early in the, in the podcast, but Dorsey just had on and off it didn't feel like he had any ability to take anything off the ball when he decided to go, when he decided to throw it. And in this case, he was trying to throw a, little, a real quick slant. And it was just way too hard. Hey man, that probably worked against Rutgers and Temple. Third <laughs> uh. and six. Pass hummed, intercepted. Buckeyes have it. That's Mike Doss. 30, 25, inside the 20, before he's pulled out of bounds by Willis McGee. I do have to say, we are both on the same side when it comes to ripping on uh, ripping on Miami. So, <laughs> and, and, it, and it's funny because we, we went through the schedule for Ohio State, but, you know, you look at the schedule for Miami, the beating the, at the time, number six Florida Gators, 
uh, 41 to 16 in the swamp. Ron Zook um, skaters, yep. And <laughs> they beat Florida State 28 to 27. That's always a tough one. And Florida State, I think, was pretty decent that year. Yeah. But hey, number 17, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh was good. And then number was 18. That, was that Larry Fitzgerald still? Was he still there, around? I think he, I think that might have been around when he was around still. He might have been. And then and then you had number 18, Virginia Tech. And this was, I believe, post Michael Vick, Virginia Tech. So. Uh, Correct. So, so not exactly a, a juggernaut, a, a good team, but not a juggernaut. Um, you know, interesting. Miami played at Florida. They played at Tennessee. Um, you know, so a little bit of an SEC oh, schedule there for yeah, for the Hurricanes. But uh, anyway, so if we get back to the game, you get the pass thrown by Dorsey. He the ball tips off his receiver's hands, and Krenzel scores on a second straight quarterback sneak from the one on fourth down. Right. So two straight quarterback sneaks with Krenzel. It's seven seven with two twenty eight left in the half. I mean Miami has had the had the ball for like a grand total of like six plays in the second quarter because they can't stop turning the ball over. And it, but at this point they still have one hundred and thirty seven passing yards. They've got zero rushing yards. Ohio State has fifty one rushing yards, most of them by Krenzel, and only twenty pass yards. But it's seven seven. And Claret's a non factor. Who was their basically their most of their offense the whole year? That's, Who's their only offense incredible. the whole year? Yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely incredible. If you're a Ohio State fan, unbelievable that it's seven to seven. But Miami takes over on the next possession. Ken Dorsey gets stripped by defensive tackle Kenny Peterson on the first play of the drive, and all of a sudden, there's Ohio State right back in it inside the twenty yard line, ready to go in and score. All right, so this is where I rip on Ohio State a little bit because they, they end up converting us into a touchdown. Claret goes up the middle for a touchdown, 14-7. to seven. They haven't had a real drive yet in this entire oh. game, and they're ahead oh. by a touchdown, 14-7, to seven. And, and could be up 17-7 to seven if they had decided to go for a field goal, though I contend that had they gone for a field goal there, likely this doesn't happen the way it happens, that the mm-hmm. attitude that Trestle had you know, the fact that he didn't Kirby smart it and kick a field goal on fourth and one and that he had Krenzel run from there. The fact that he decided to do the fake field goal. Like, I think that matters. I really do think it does. And, and as a stats guy, I don't necessarily think about momentum, but I think the attitude matters. And, and, you know, all of a sudden Ohio State up 14 to seven. They haven't had a real drive yet. Miami hasn't had a real drive in the entire second quarter because they turned the ball over every time they touched it. And, you know, you're just sitting there going, wow, Larry Coker and Ken Dorsey, yikes. So you're saying Trestle is not a smart coach? No, I'm saying Trestle was doing a, a great a job. Kirby, and I, he's not a Kirby smart coach. No, he's not that, a Kirby smart coach. Well, <laughs> it's interesting because, you know, 18 of, the 20, joke. Eight, eight, joke. 18 of the 22 starters were recruited by John Cooper. Yeah. And Cooper won 111 and 43 and four, which is a real good record, right? 70.2 win percent. Trestle was 106 and 22. So 83% of his games. Um yeah, you know, I, I, that's up there in the Urban Meyer echelon in terms of winning. That's up there with the Nick Saban yep. echelon in terms of winning. Obviously, Trestle won at Youngstown State as well. Um, he's a really good coach. And you, you, you did leave off the BCS title appearance in 07, which was the really weird one with, when they played LSU, the two-loss LSU team that ended up winning that weird 07 season. And it, it, it's it, like he made three BCS title games. That's insanely hard to do. Yeah, well, you know. Not in the He's, big time, but anyway. no. I mean, it wasn't. A, it wasn't a game worth remembering. It was a pretty ugly game, but that was less <laughs> Miles' national title. Would they beat him in the Superdome? Seems like LSU goes when it's in the Superdome. Well, they they were able to win. He didn't have any grass to eat in the Superdome. 
So, so halftime thoughts. I mean, Miami was conservative in the first quarter, left points on the table. Um, obviously, the Hurricanes turned the ball over so much in the second quarter that Ohio State's basically gifted the lead. Um, you know, Miami couldn't run the ball, which did make Dorsey have to throw against lots of guys in coverage. Um, you know, we mentioned the touchdown was on cover zero, and that was weird, and we didn't really see it again. Um, but, you know, as a Canes fan, I would have been furious with Coker. His team didn't look prepared. They didn't adjust. They didn't take any risks. And they didn't stick with things that worked. I mean, Kellen Winslow throughout the first half was the only thing that was really working on offense. And it felt like every time they went, went to him, Ohio State couldn't do anything with it. And they just went away from him from, from you know, drive to drive in the, in the first half. And, in fact, you know, even in the second half, that's sort of how they got back into the game was going to Winslow, and then they just forget about him. Yeah, all their positive drives seemed to involve Winslow. But really just the key to the first half, really both running games, which were pretty powerful throughout the regular season, were completely non-existent, which you would think, well, that's going to favor Miami entirely. But they keep making their mistakes. But, again, I'd say overall, even though Ohio State's in the lead, that, you know, follow the script of the season for the Buckeyes perfectly because the, the defense just carried that offense. And that's the way that season you, – you watch that first half, that's the way that season was. Like there were some games where the offense showed up and played well, but in the in critical Big Ten games, that Penn State game, I, I attended that game up in Columbus. The only touchdown in that game for Ohio State was Chris Campbell had a pick six against Penn State. So it was like there's games where they would win games. We're in an era of football where you're still the national champion is a team that doesn't score offensive touchdowns in an entire game. That's kind of stunning to think about. Dude, I actually had the thought while I was watching the game that I know how this game ends and I still want to go on DraftKings and bet on the Hurricanes. <laughs> like, like, that's how much better they were than Ohio State yeah. from just a pure talent standpoint. And obviously, you know, one game, anything can happen and all the turnovers and all that sort of stuff really skewed in Ohio State's way. But, you know, I, I, I tune, you know, you fast forward to the third quarter and go, and you sort of mentioned that your memory was Ohio State racing out in front. And then Miami having to play catch up the whole game. And that's not what happened. Miami allowed Ohio State to run out in front at halftime. And then it was just sort of a slugfest from there on out. And, and you know, that Fouts did make the point that Ohio State was running the play clock down to four or five seconds on almost every play, right. basically about halfway through the second quarter. Once, once they got to the point where it was 7-7, and especially when they got to where it was 14-7, to they were like, make this game as short as we possibly can. It's trestle ball, baby. Trestle ball. <laughs> That's so, old school Big Ten football still back then. You, you didn't have like there wasn't there wasn't that spread offense in the Big Ten. Like I mean, Joe Tiller came in the, with Purdue in the early to, like late nineties, early two thousands, and Drew Brees. They threw the ball around, but that was about it. Like I mean, Indiana had Antoine Randall play quarterback. They're kind of fun, but there wasn't those like it, it was mostly lining up powerful run games at, at Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, Wisconsin was very much. Wisconsin was basically still Wisconsin today. So if you saw Wisconsin today, you saw them in 2002. But well, and we, we also know that the spread coming to the Big Ten has not always been um, has not always been great. I mean, the Rich Rod era at Michigan was was a, was a bit yeah. of a mess, but obviously the Urban Meyer era at uh, at Ohio State was pretty successful. So it's been sort of a mixed bag in terms of the ability to to push forward in those sorts of things. I mean, you know what? Trestle beat Michigan. You mentioned the three BCS right. appearances, but he also made Michigan his punching bag. And Which to be honest, huge. with you and me, both Florida fans, I mean, if if uh, Dan Mullen makes, makes Georgia his punching bag, I'll take a couple of losses and some big-time bowl games. It's all good. It's all good. 
Yeah, it really it makes it makes life good, especially after a decade of getting dominated by Michigan. And really, I mean, even throughout the 80s, Michigan was probably the better program. But really, I mean, you also think, too, Buckeye football, Woody Hayes is the all-time. Steve Spurrier is the legend at Florida. Woody Hayes is the legend at Ohio State. Three things ha- three things can happen on a pass. Two of them are bad. So, like, this was not – Ohio State football fans were okay watching this style of football back then. Yeah, well – Hopefully they get back to it so that we can spank them again the next time they get into a, <laughs> get into a championship game. So, you know, if we move to the third quarter, the first drive, Miami gets the ball to start. McGahee catches a little screen pass, shies away from a hit, and ends up falling like a half yard short right around midfield on third down. Miami punts. Uh, again, I'm just sitting here going, Larry Coker, what are you doing? He doesn't trust that running game, man. Will McGahee couldn't get going. Couldn't Who get cares going. if you trust the running game? Throw the damn ball. Will, he knew how tough the Buckeye defense was. He knew oh. how tough the Buckeye defense was. Then you go start showing some respect. Dude, if Bush Jones had been on the sideline, then Miami would have won by 50. <laughs> yeah, I mean, different era, though, too. It wasn't that common to go for fourth downs like that. It was, like kind of, it was, pretty, much, it was pretty much like if it was fourth and short, you're punting. You're playing Dude. field position games. I think if Elmer Fudd had been on the sideline, Miami would have won by 30. It was just like every time there was an opportunity to be a little bit aggressive, Larry Coker's like, mm, punt. It's a, he, well, again, didn't have to worry about it too much against Rutgers and Temple. Didn't have a lot of, <laughs> didn't have a lot of worries coming in. Oh, man. So Ohio State finally hits a big play. Krenzel hits Chris Gamble 57 yards on a third and long down into the red zone. Right. And then Krenzel follows it up with maybe the worst interception you might ever see to, to Sean Taylor. But then Claret steals the ball back. I had completely forgotten this play happened. Krenzel keeps it. Throws it to the end zone, and it is picked off. Picked off by Sean Taylor. He threw it right to him. He had double coverage on his intended receiver and no chance to get it there. And Claret. Claret has stolen the ball. ball. Yes, he did, Keith. Maurice Claret with the play of the game, perhaps, as Sean Taylor going down the sidelines, reminiscent of George Teague of Alabama stealing the ball from Miami a few years back. Oh, this play is ingrained in Ohio State lore. I mean, this is like, again, Claret wasn't a factor on the ground. I think he ended up with uh, 43 rushing yards on the game. Like, he wasn't a real factor on the ground, had a couple, but he showed up in key moments. Scores a touchdown inside the red zone. He'll come up big later in, inside the red zone. But this play was just the key play of the game. Sean Taylor, who's a great player by everyone. Everyone is in unanimous agreement that this guy is one of the best players to ever play at Miami. Intercepts the ball in the end zone. And as he's leaping over, I always wondered kind of how that happened. They always showed he was carrying the ball really loose. But he was leaping over a tackler as it happened, and he just was had his head down looking at the guy he was jumping over. And Claret, the ball happened to come away from his body at the same time Claret swoops in, grabs the ball, gives the Buckeyes the ball back, and, and really that's the play of the game. Well, Save the possession and gets Ohio State a field goal. I, I figured you'd have a play of the game later when we start blaming officials. But um, <laughs> you know, it, it is interesting because Claret as a running back – 
knows that you're supposed to put both hands on the ball when you feel the contact running yeah. coming. And I do wonder whether him being a running back sort of gave him insight to how to get the ball away from Taylor. You know, Taylor was carrying it in his right hand, even though he was on the left sideline. So he didn't get it in the right hand. And, and Claret was able to come over and grab it out of there. I'm sure Claret's had that happen to him in practice and, and had coaches get on him all the time. So him being a running back, I think probably helped him make that play. Let's, let's also appreciate that this is a true freshman making that play. I mean, how many true freshmen have, have that kind of awareness that, that they can do that? I mean, he, that's, that's, a, that's a veteran play right there, and especially in a game where he was probably a little frustrated with how much, you know, he was not making plays with, to the level which he was used to. So, And not to get in it too deep on the Maurice Claret side tangent because we could go on a long one there, but – he had a hell of a week leading up to the game, like where was basically there was some public sniping with Ohio State over. He wanted to attend a friend's funeral. They they told he says they told him they'd pay for a flight back. They end up not doing it. He's pissed. He goes out in public, says a bunch of things. So that the Claret controversy, some seeds were sown that that week. But this is Maurice Claret's last game. It was a Buckeye, and those those seeds were definitely sown this week. Yeah, well, I mean, it's funny that you talk about him being a true freshman and how it's significant he's contributing. I mean, one of the things early in the game, Keith Jackson had said, I think it was A.J. Hawk came mm -hmm. in at middle linebacker because, yeah. um, you know, because the middle linebacker had been injured for Ohio State. And, and he said something along the lines of, a freshman in these circumstances is in deep water. And I'm like, dude, there's another guy playing running back, true freshman. You, right. know, you don't say anything about him. But uh, um, and of but, all yeah. people, it's A.J. Hawk. Who ends up being awesome. <laughs> well, you know, and I mean, you see this all the time with guys who win national championships in their second year. I mean, they do it with a lot of the previous administration's players. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you think about, um, you know, you think about Ohio State here, a lot of John Cooper's players, but you've got Claret, you've got A.J. Hawk, you've got some, some other guys there who weren't necessarily Cooper guys. Think about Urban Meyer in 06, you know, obviously Chris Leak's a quarterback, but you got T-Bone Harvin and sort of on and on and on. We see that all the time when, when guys make it to the championship of the second year. Obviously, you have to rely on the previous recruiting or the previous recruiting classes of the previous administration, but it's those top level guys who are the real difference makers who end up making the difference. And Claret was one of those guys. Absolutely. I mean, he really keyed that. He was the key to that engine for most of the season. He had some injury issues. That definitely slowed him down toward the end of the year, but I think he was a full go in this game. And just that type of play, it really just shows how special of a football player he was. Yeah, so Ohio State gets the ball back. They settle for a field goal. So now it's 17 to 7, Ohio State. Still no points that weren't assisted by turnovers. Um, and, and actually, still no points that didn't. Still counts. That didn't start like within the 30 of Miami. <laughs> still counts. So, so the it's all about the defense, man. It's all about the defense. Uh, so, you know, the next drive, it, 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 Miami looked rattled. They, they couldn't run the ball. They wound up in another third and long. Dorsey misses a wide open Andre Johnson on third down. He just underthrew him. And this looked a little bit more like the Dorsey I remembered where he couldn't quite get the oomph on the throw. But it was still something where he basically threw a line drive. It just didn't go far enough and didn't give Johnson the, um, the time to adjust to the throw. Yeah, I, I, they definitely came out. It, it looked a little sloppy for the Miami offense still. But, you know, Ohio State got the ball back, pretty much gave it three and out, gave it right back to the Canes. And, and then you start to see them get going a little bit. 
Yeah, well, I mean, they had, a, they had a bad punt, right? So Miami yeah. takes over to, at its own 45. Um, you know, Winslow was a big part of this drive. Down the middle and a big third down conversion. Yeah. This was the first time where they really relied on Winslow. And it's funny because by the end of the game, um, Fouts was basically like, I bet you this one's going to Kellen Winslow. And when they did it, they were successful. And when they didn't, they were unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's one of those things where sometimes the color man knows what's going to happen or at least knows what should happen and is able to point it out to people. Yeah. And there's Kellen Winslow's dad. Another call that happened a lot during that era. They love pointing out Kellen Winslow senior in the stance all the time. Well, we'll, we'll ignore what we know about Kellen Winslow now um, no comment. When, yeah. when we're talking about this game. But so McGahee runs for a touchdown, something like 20, 22 yards. It was one where, you know, I had remembered the knee injury to McGahee happening earlier in the game, like for some reason. And it was part of it was because he was pretty ineffective for the first three quarters. Um, but this was really something where you look at him and go, wow, that, that guy's special in yeah. terms of his ability to accelerate and get around the corner on the Ohio State defense. Yeah, he just bounced to the edge, and he made it look so easy. And the thing, too, he was just such a smooth runner. Like, when he, like, hit his stride, he was just, like, kind of an upright, like, really smooth runner. And he uh, he, he, he just was starting to get going. I, I did remember that it happened in the fourth quarter because I remember he was starting to look good. And he had kind of come out of that funk he was in in the first half. And uh, – it really, when you saw McGay, he get going, and then they're kind of hitting Winslow. As a Buckeye fan, you're sitting there going, I don't know. I don't know if this 10 point lead's going to hold. And then they cut it, they cut it down, they end up scoring. Uh, you know, three point lead. You, yeah, I think you got to do some more scoring if you're going to win this game. But uh, you remember it a lot more vividly than me, I'm sure, because this is sort of like me watching the Olympics when China's playing Russia. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like, do, do I like either one of these countries? Not really. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I watched the game obviously, and cause I love college football, but, um, the, these, the things like the claret pulling the ball away, that's an iconic play in Ohio state lore. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's not an iconic play in my mind. It's just something that I missed. Same thing with the McGahee injury. Yeah. Um, you know, I rem my memory was he went out early and didn't have a chance to get going. The reality is, is that Ohio state stopped him and, and he was really a non-factor other than the one touchdown run. Yeah, well, he did, he did start getting going in that, that fourth quarter, too, a little bit, where he had a couple nice runs. But overall, yes. Not like it wasn't uh, – I mean, compared to what you're used to, he was such a high-level performer. And the Buckeyes definitely did a good job keeping him, keeping him like, kind of uh, ganged up on – they kind of ganged up on him. Anytime he got the ball, he didn't really get a chance to get loose. Yeah, so we open up the fourth quarter, and, and Dan Fouts, my favorite comment of the game, that, you know, Keith Jackson's talking about Dorsey and his potential to play in the NFL. And he goes, he can play in the NFL. He's a winner. And I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> Pretty good company for Ken Dorsey. All-time consecutive wins by a starting quarterback. And this one, obviously, is last chance to tie the record of Chuck Ely. And said the other day that he planned and wanted to Try to play on Sunday. I think he can. He's a winner. There's just a difference between being like being an elite college quarterback and being an being even a serviceable NFL quarterback. There's such a big difference and such a big jump in that thing. It's always amusing to me when they see some guy who happens to be fronting a team that has you know 75 guys who are going to end up in the NFL, 
And then they're like, oh, that quarterback, he's a winner. It's like, maybe it's because he has Vince Wilfork and Ed Reed and, <laughs> and Sean Taylor and, you know, <laughs> and Andre Johnson. Like, maybe that's the reason. Willis McGay, maybe that's why they look at Because, I mean, you know, you got Frank Gore, like all these guys who sort of went through Miami, um, Jonathan Vilma. I mean, Dorsey was a big part of managing the game for Miami, but he wasn't winning a lot of games for the Hurricanes. I mean, yeah, this is a super talented team, but you do need that game. You, you need that guy at the college level. At the college level, he was a damn good quarterback. But, I mean, clearly Will just doesn't give him any credit for being the starting quarterback of the Cleveland Browns here and there. Like, he had a couple starts for the Cleveland Browns. So I guess I guess that one just – the Ken Dorsey era in Cleveland just wasn't important to you. Oh, come on, but, dude. He, he had more talent in Miami <laughs> than he did when he was playing for the Browns. <laughs> He he was not a winner in Cleveland, I don't think. I don't think. Dan Fouts, Dan Fouts would have said that. So so one of the things that, again, one of those key plays that I think you miss sometimes is Mike Doss just missed a pick six. Second and ten. Short tip. Whoa. My goodness, Mike Doss had one hand on it. Six on on sort of a, a slant play again that he cut in front of the the wide receiver and almost gets a pick six bounces basically right off of his helmet and then the next play is the screen out to McGahee where he just obliterates his knee and you know again I remember that happening earlier in the game but I do wonder like let's say let's say Doss gets that pick six and McGahee ends up not injured and then Miami's forced to be aggressive you know obviously at that point Ohio State's up by 10 points, but they're also up by 10 points with like 10 minutes left. And if Miami had been forced to be aggressive, I do wonder whether they would have won the game just because they were so conservative the entire game that being forced into being aggressive might have given them an advantage. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I definitely think that Ohio State would have gone super conservative on offense. I think they would have just been run the ball and melting that clock the way they were uh, throughout most of the game. And I'm not sure... 10-point lead in the fourth quarter with that defense, you'd like to think Ohio State would be like, yeah, we'll take that. We'll take that. that that's, an okay, that's an okay advantage for that defense. But, um, yeah, just, they definitely would have loosened up a little bit on that Miami side. Well, and, it's, and you would have had McGahee down the entire stretch, too. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You, you know, you'd mentioned Claret and sort of his discussion with Ohio State and then leaving Ohio State after the year and, and contesting his ability to get into the draft. But they even brought it up during the broadcast with McGahee that there had been rumors coming in for him about shoe contracts that would come to him if he came out early and went to the NFL. And it just really made me think, I can't believe these guys still aren't paid in 2020. No. Like you said, I mean, you know, how many knee injuries do we have to have before, before people decide that, and, and again, the mechanism is is not that important. And we do have the name, image, and likeness coming next year. But still, you know, you're looking two decades past when McGay he destroyed his knee. Um, you know, and we've had we've had subsequent guys who have destroyed their 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 knees as well, and and haven't been able to necessarily get the NFL money. It's just amazing to me that that guys still aren't paid. Yeah, I mean, it's the efficient machine of the NCAA. I think we all love it, and we all know that it's making the best decisions. And I think that uh, this is just another great example of how good they're doing on a lot of these things. I, I want to talk a side note about that injury real quick, the McGahee injury. I feel like that's our generation's Joe Theismann moment. You know, growing up, my, my dad's a big football fan too, and he always told me about that Joe Theismann injury with Lawrence Taylor. 
and just seeing the replay over and over again. And they kept playing that McGahee replay. And when you watched his knee, you just said, I mean, that legitimately was. He, he snapped three ligaments, and it's like, is this guy even going to play in the NFL? And that's to, back to your point, we got to figure this thing out. I mean, again, here we are two decades later. We're still talking about it. But I think now the conversations at least progress to the point where we kind of maybe see light at the end of the tunnel to some degree. But I, it just, man. These guys, these guys play pretty. These these guys can catch a bad break, and it's it's pretty amazing that McGee, he actually went on to have a really solid NFL career after this. Yeah, but you do wonder what hap- what his career would have been like if he'd have been as explosive as he was prior. I mean, obviously we've got surgeries that are able to repair people's knees, but as somebody who's had a major reconstructive knee surgery, I can tell you that knee ain't the same after you're done with it, no matter how good your surgeon is. And yeah, I heard you and- used to run a four three. <laughs> no. Twenty. Okay. All right. All right. Four three twenty. <laughs> That's actually always, it's always funny when you talk to somebody like, yeah, I read a four nine. You're like, no, you didn't. <laughs> like, no, no, you didn't. Like, did you actually play sports? Nah, I, yeah. I didn't. I didn't want to hurt myself. And it's like, yeah, you, you didn't run four nine. Like, no, I I remember in high school, I, I we'd run forties uh, before football season, get our times in, and my coach just like would always just be disappointed when he'd look at the clock after I ran. And I told him one time, I was like, it feels like I'm running fast. Like oh, I just no, my, the winds the winds going across my face pretty fast. Like I feel like I'm running fast. I, I wasn't. I no, wasn't my, my the nickname for me on my baseball team was Wheels because I needed them. So on the drive that McGahee gets injured, Miami misses a 54 yard field goal after another Dorsey sack, um, and and then Ohio State comes down. Actually has a pretty nice drive. A couple mm-hmm. of third down conversions, take some time off the clock, and then He's they four miss a minutes. Field goal. Four minutes off the clock. And then they miss a field goal, right? So, again, six minutes left, still no points on a real drive. Two, two decent kickers, too, by the way. Mike, Mike Nugent was a clutch kicker for Ohio State for many years. Doesn't miss those type of field goals. I'm a pretty good player for the Jets, too. Yeah, long career. Yeah, I mean, I think he's still, he's still bouncing in and out of the league. Yeah, so, Miami goes back to Winslow twice. Open conversation here. Why, why do coaches do that? He's dominated, but they keep going away from him. Um, and in fact, they go away from him again, complete it to Roscoe Parrish deep into Ohio State territory, but he fumbles. Th- this shotgun, Dorsey, a lot of time, a lot of time. Finally, lets it go down the middle. It's caught by Roscoe Parrish, and the ball comes out. And Ohio State pounces on it. The beanbag is down, and the Buckeyes recover it. It's Will Allen with another big play. Live, it looked like an incomplete pass. But when you saw the replay, it, it was a fumble. Yeah, another big, big, big moment in the game. I actually did not remember this one at all. This one, because of all the big plays that are about to come up. You were didn't remember this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> didn't remember this at all. Like, I mean, it was like, uh, it just, it was such a, I mean, he, he caught it in the middle. Like, it, the, the camera didn't do a good job showing the play leading up to it. But he caught it between what appeared to be three Buckeye defenders, and he somehow came up with it. But then as he was hit from behind, he ends up uh, losing the football, and Ohio State recovers on the 20, they're on 20 with uh, five minutes left. But another key part of that drive that I made a note of, Jared Payton, the son of Walter Payton, checks in the game, and he had only touched the ball 42 times that season. That's going to be important down the road. <laughs> so, you know, Krenzel takes over after the fumble by Parrish, 
He's the leading rusher. He's got more than 60 yards with four minutes left, only 99 yards passing. And again, actually does get a third down conversion and is able to continue to get the clock running. Shoes but they, up clock. But yeah. they do have to punt back to, to Miami. Parrish takes it. Big punt return. Hold with on. Two, Hold on. Yes? Hold on. Will, you're forgetting a very important part. Please do it. I would like to know. I would like to I would like you to know that the officials missed not one, but two blatant holds on Chris Gamble on a critical third down when Craig Krenzel was looking to cross that hundred yard mark on the dude, day. Dude, you, you have a lot of nerve blaming the officials for anything in this the game. Officials, every Ohio State fan is very scarred by the officials' calls and they really missed the flags. And I have evidence here. I brought some evidence with me, some handy paperwork. As you can see, Chris Gamble is clearly being held by Kenny Jennings on this on the out route, which he clearly had to be. There's the first hold, and here's the second. Does that look like a guy's meaning? By the way, Gamble still caught the ball, but he was ruled out of bounds. But if he ran clean and wasn't affected, first down Ohio State, clock melted. Game over. We're not even talking about overtime. Hey. So the officials, the officials, really, really, I, it's surprising the officials even let Miami into this game. I mean, it just they really kept Miami around in this game. So there's really nothing to complain about officiating down the road. Do, but do just, you, I just wanted to make that point real quick. Do you have the Ohio State Buckeye, like, mascot head you can put on your head there, Lee Corso? You got visual yeah, evidence, the Zapruder film. What the hell's going on here? Yeah, yeah. No, I got it. I, 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 I had to print those out because I think the folks would want to know that the officials really missed that call. So, I mean, most Ohio State fans know they missed that call. We, if they make that call, we're not going over time. Because, you like know, you said, Roscoe Parrish is about to return that punt down the sideline. I've learned so much about you during this podcast because we did Florida, South Carolina last week, and you were nowhere near this big a homer. You liked me. You liked me on that one, though. Well, sure, but <laughs> God, you're a huge Ohio State homer. This is annoying. So, they get shit on so much for this game, and I had to, I had to stick up for I had to stick up for a couple key plays. They, they really should. So, the big punt return by Roscoe Parrish, two o two left, brings it all the way back to the Ohio State twenty six. He probably had something to do with it. Taylor. And here's the punt. Andy Groom puts some air under it, drives it back to the 25-yard line. Here comes Roscoe Parrish. Parrish getting to the sidelines, gets a block. And he's finally taken down all the way down the field at the 26-yard line. Big return by Roscoe Parrish and a huge block by Gerald Weaver that kept him going. And again, Larry Coker. Ugh. Larry <laughs> Coker. Run on first down, stuffed, yep. then a sack, then just play for the field goal after the sack. Where the heck was Kellen Winslow? Kellen Winslow, he must have been covered by Mike Doss. Must have been. <laughs> he was not. He was wide open. <laughs> if you if you wind it back on the sack, Winslow was wide open. And the play wasn't designed for him. Dor Dorsey was looking elsewhere. <laughs> Yeah, that sack was pretty critical. You got to think a senior quarterback in that situation, he can at least get the ball away. I mean, I, I, I guess, you know, again, you, you can criticize one or two things that a coach does, but you get the punt return with two minutes left to the Ohio State 26. Ohio State hasn't been able to move the ball the whole game. They don't take one shot, not one shot to the end zone. And, 
you know, and, and on the sack, they weren't even trying to take a shot to the end zone. Like if you look at the play, that wasn't where it was designed. Mm -hmm. It wasn't for Winslow. It wasn't for the end zone. Again, just conservative, basically saying we already have the field goal. We don't want to screw it up. And when you're the team with more talent, the last thing you want to do is give the other team the ability to take you into overtime. Because if you're the team with more talent, you should win the one-on-one battle. You should be able Put in a max protect, go deep. I mean, geez, do something. Don't run on first down and get stuffed for the 75th time in the game. How much do you think those interceptions were in his head? I mean, maybe a little bit, but dude won a national championship for you last year. He hasn't lost a game in like two and a half years. Like, at some point, you figure you should trust your quarterback. But, um, you know, obviously that uh, (laughs) – And and you're relying on a fairly long field goal from a kicker who just missed a field goal. I mean, he does make the field goal, right? So, yep. I mean, I guess at the end of the day, your 17-17 going in overtime sets up for an awesome ending. But it's just, again, it, it's, it was flummoxing. And then you go back to the beginning of overtime, and Dorsey opens overtime with a touchdown to Winslow. Who? <laughs> I was doing my Larry Coker impression for you, Will. <laughs> let me, before we get into overtime too heavy, let me make this point too. I, when we were, we were kids, how old are you, Will? I'm 38. Yeah, we're old enough where we have to think about it, too. I have to go, oh, yeah, I'm 34. Yeah, we're old enough to have to think about it now. But when we were kids, man, championship games were not that good in football. I mean, you got to think about all the Super Bowls. Like, they, they weren't that great. I think 2000, the Rams-Titans Super Bowl came down to that final minute. But most of the Super Bowls in my childhood, not good. The that's BCS- just because my Buffalo Bills were in them all. <laughs> Yeah, thankfully, I was a little on the young side to remember all of those. But like, I think that, yeah, that must have been pretty brutal as a child. So you got some childhood trauma, too. I do. It's just not Ohio State, Michigan trauma, which, by the way, when you were talking, it's a long story. But when when you were uh, when you were talking about Ohio State losing to Michigan, those were some pretty awesome tears. I I was enjoying that. Oh, man, I still I still feel like I haven't had made them up, man. It's childhood stuff, man. It's the worst. Like, I think we need a win for another 20 years to feel better about it. But really, I mean, you look at the national title games, even when the BCS era, Tennessee won by a TD against Florida State, which was far from a classic. FSU, Vatek in the Sugar Bowl had that high-scoring affair. FSU uh, pulled away late in that one. Oklahoma, FSU in the Orange was ugly. The Miami Rose Bowl against, uh, win against Nebraska was pretty terrible. So this was like a real classic, and you knew it in the moment, too, about it develop, You know, it's just developing right in front of your eyes. And, you know, little did we know a few years later, USC Texas would come come around and kind of dethrone this game. But this was an amazing game in, 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 at its point in time. Well, I mean, yeah, you, you call it a classic when one team steals it on terrible calls by the officials. So, Yeah, I know. <laughs> Can't, we should not be in overtime right now. Change the narrative. Change the narrative. Uh, so, we open, so we open up overtime. Miami gets the ball first. Um, you know, the key is a throw, touchdown throw to Winslow. Again, why is this so intermittent? They go to Winslow, immediately things open up. They could not cover him. I think he had 11 catches in the game, well over 100 yards. Um, you know, Dorsey. Did you have to catch the officials through a flag for pass interference on Ohio State on that catch with Winslow? So, what's your point? They weren't afraid to fall, throw a flag on a pass interference in the end zone. Just yeah, but, little, they, but they didn't throw it after just, the team had already come out on the field to celebrate. So. Just, 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 a little, just a little fact I wanted to throw in there. Just slipping that in. So, so Miami goes up by a touchdown, 24-17. And, and 
as much as I make fun of the pass interference and as much as we're going to talk about that, I, I actually want to talk about something else because Ohio State, to open up the drive, gets stuffed on first down, mm-hmm. and then they get sacked to make it third and 14. Then Miami blows up a screen to make it fourth and 14. And I had not remembered this. Yep. That, you know, fans know what's coming at the end of the drive. But this was the key play of the game. So, yep. I don't think, you know, I, I can make fun of Ohio State all I want, and I will. But you don't deserve to win a game when you have five turnovers and you give up a fourth and 14 in overtime. Again, and, you're, talking, you're not talking about the refs. I don't understand. <laughs> well, the refs screwed up too. But, you know, complete to Michael Jenkins right in front of Sean Taylor. So, again, it's not as though – um, Krenzel was throwing to, you know, against the stiff or anything like that. One of the best safeties in the game um, gets beat, right, by an Ohio State wide receiver. Again, I would say the conservative nature of Larry Coker comes in again where they did not bring any pressure yep. on a fourth and 14. And it feels like what you would have wanted to do is make Krenzel throw the ball quick and make a wide receiver make a play. Instead, they allowed Krenzel to sit in the pocket. He's able to find Jenkins, and all of a sudden you got first and goal. They go with three wideouts. We've got two protectors back there for Krenzel. Now one of them runs away. Florette. Krenzel steps up and goes to the sidelines. And that's good for the first down. Caught by Michael Jenkins. Well, he was probably worried that Krenzel almost had triple digits passing yards. He was probably nervous. That probably made him a little nervous. But I, I think that this play is absolutely where Miami lost the game. I mean, Kane's rush for Krenzel is just sitting there, has all day to throw for Michael Jenkins just to run, who was a damn good receiver, ended up playing in the NFL for quite a while, runs a perfect route on the out route, a yard above the first down marker, and uh, ends up ends up converting on a huge play. Absolutely shocking play of the game. That's the most shocking play of the game. Well, and I think it goes back to overall, if you're a coach, fourth and long, blitz. If you get beat in one-on-one coverage, if you get beat because you didn't, don't get to the quarterback, if you get beat because the quarterback is able to run, get outside the pocket, and get a, get a first down, I mean, I can live with that. The fact that you don't bring an extra guy and the guy just sits back there and you find a hole in the zone. And, and the reality is, is I don't – fourth and 14 is difficult, but it's not fourth and 24, mm-hmm. right? And so bring in – bring in minimum pressure, especially when you think about overtime at that point, your defensive linemen are gassed. So you only bring four guys. And you know, I completely agree with you. This was where the game was lost. Well, it was one of the places where the game was lost because one of the interesting things is it's still just 24 to 17 Miami and Ohio state has a chance to win. The final score of this game was 31 to 24. So there's a lot more still to come after this. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm Nick Newton. This is my co-host Todd Grantham saying blitz, blitz, blitz. So good points. Good points on that. Yeah. No, you got to think, especially with this defense, with Miami's defense, you have Antrell Roll in the secondary. You have Sean Taylor in the secondary. It's not like you have some secondary that can't handle the coverage. Well, but like, this is the thing. At this point, I wasn't even fr- at this point I wasn't even frustrated anymore because I knew that Coker was like rolling up in a ball in the sideline, about ready to cry and ask for his blanket because he'd done it the whole game. Every time there was an opportunity to be aggressive, he chose to be conservative. Fourth and fourteen, he decided to do it again. He's relying on that talent, just thinking he's got the talent and everything. But, I, you know, Michael Jenkins, uh, he had the fourth down catch against Purdue. Ohio State was down 6-3 to three late against Purdue. Don't laugh. And they ended up converting on a fourth down 
conversion to, to win the game on a long pass from uh, from Krenzel to Jenkins. So those two had come through in a clutch moment before to save Ohio State season. They do it again. Yeah. So I mean, you know, I I I don't I I don't even remember what happened first through third down on on the drive. I mean, I rewatched it. I still don't remember. It really just leads to the controversial pass interference. Well, hold on. For, I I got a couple notes for that real uh, quick. Sean Taylor, absolutely. First off, I found it interesting. We talked about how much they were under center in that game. Ohio State really went out of shotgun most of that drive. They, were, they had Krenzel back there in the shotgun because they were using him as the running game too. And he ran inside the 10-yard line. Krenzel runs inside the 10-yard line, gets lit up by Sean Taylor. and has to get up and incomplete on third down, and I'll let you take it over on fourth down. And yeah. I'll just – I'll stay silent and hold up a memorial in the meantime. <laughs> Clarets up there as a, a wide out too. The ball goes into the end zone and it is incomplete. Intended for Gamble. Now there is a penalty flag thrown. Hold on. Hold the phone. Everybody comes running down on the field. You got to get off because there's a penalty flag thrown and I think it's against Miami. So, I mean, this is, you know, I guess you'd call it a fade route. It wasn't really a fade route. Um, you've got Glenn Sharp, the Miami DB, Chris Gamble, the receiver. I like the fact that Trestle went to his best wide receiver. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I, here's, here's the deal. I think it was a bad call, but I understand. There were two things. One, it looked weird, right? It just didn't look right. It looked like Sharp was hugging Gamble. But, yes. but when you look at the replay, the ball had already hit Gamble's hands or gone through Gamble's hands before he really impacted Gamble's ability to catch the ball. And I think Gamble, you know, you're, you're, you're showing that, uh, that visual of Gamble getting held earlier in the game, but Gamble also came in and kind of, kind of head slapped <laughs> sharp when he went out there and threw him off balance to sort of grab sharp prior to the ball going in the air and threw him off balance. So I don't like the call because the defensive back didn't impact Gamble's ability to catch the ball but I understand the call because it looked weird. And when you've got hand fighting down on the goal line, almost always the offensive guy's going to get the call. So it, it was a late flag, but it wasn't as bad as I remember, like as late as I remember. Well, my actual memory is I collapsed onto the ground and I was face down on the ground and then someone yelled flag in the room. And I was like, what? And, and then all of my dreams came true. And then, uh, but <laughs> Mrs. Knudsen does not appreciate that comment. Yeah, yeah, she does. She she knows. She knows. But <laughs> they. Uh, <laughs> but what I rem- what I remember because you, you hear Miami talk about the call, and when you hear Miami talk about the call, they'll talk it like it was eight seconds or seven or eight seconds. Literally, Keith Jackson didn't miss a beat. He said, "And the ball is incomplete, intended for Gamble. Now there's a penalty flag thrown." It was like all one stretch. It was a delayed flag. I'll give you that. But I like it's not even worth trying to change someone's mind. If you think it was a flag, you're gonna stay on that side. I'm not even worth it's not even worth trying to convince anyone. But it, it's the first like overtime. The first overtime, they were Buckeyes were flagged for the PI in the end zone. So someone who says, Oh, you can't call in that moment, the rest were calling it in that moment. Sometimes the call goes your way, sometimes it doesn't. I get it. I, I know why Miami fans, now that I've fully infuriated Miami fans with that BS explanation, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, let me go on the other side and show some neutrality. Okay. So I, I'm going to say it was not a good call. 
I'm going to acknowledge that. Like, I remember Skip Bayless was fond of calling Ohio State the luck eyes that season, and that, that's absolutely a lucky break. But I would not have thrown the flag because the defender made a contact with the gamble after Gamble missed the reception. The official in the back corner of the end zone, though, he had a weird view. It's like you were talking about. Sharp kind of planted his feet as a DB, and his left arm wrapped around Gamble's body. And if you're watching it from behind and you see like an arched back with planted feet and wrapped around the body, it almost looks like he's holding them up a little bit. And then he throws his right arm. He throws his right arm in at the last second, but it, it, in real time, it, it was quick. But if you watch the replay, it was clear that Gamble missed the reception before Sharp's arm came in. So I don't believe there was a flag, but Miami fans get their karma this past January. There's a lot of angry YouTube vi videos from Ohio State fans from their playoff loss against Clemson insisting that a receiver caught a ball that was picked up and run in for a touchdown that the officials called uh, incomplete. And you'll never change their mind on that either. It's just one of those bang-bang plays that you're never going to change anyone's mind on one way or another. Well, so the, the, the consternation comes from the guy who threw the flag, waved his arms to say incomplete, then stopped and threw the flag. That, that's where it's like, okay, that guy called it incomplete and then decided to throw the flag. And you do wonder, did he throw the flag after the – like, did he make the decision while he was calling it incomplete? So, you know, look, I mean, the, the thing came in late. Obviously, Miami thought they won the game. Celebrating. But, I, but again, I go back to it, – it's you're still up by seven. And granted, the ball's going to be put at, what, the two-yard line, but you're still up by seven. The game's not over. And, you know, you can talk all you want about that pass interference penalty – um, but Miami has now had 17 opportunities to win this game. And as much as I hate Ohio State, I don't really like Miami anymore. So, you know, as much as I probably come across as a Miami um, defender you. here just because you're such an awful Ohio State homer, <laughs> you know, at some point we got to go, all right, Hurricanes, like sack up. It's time to actually win the game. You're the better team. Win it. And they just never did. Well, they talked about uh, if you watch, I, I watched the U part two to get ready for this. And they were talking about some of the players were talking about how all their helmets were in the air. They had to go locate their helmets after this. And one of the guys was, you know, spraying Tostitos everywhere celebrating. One of the guys said, I actually had a 2002 Miami national championship hat in my hand. He said, <laughs> he said he actually had that. So it's like, yeah, put all that back, go out and win the game. But you're right. I mean, it, they, they said it definitely affected them to do that, to, to think you want it and then feel like, all right, we got ripped off and you go on the field and you don't get it done. You don't close it out. Well, you know what affected them even more? Larry Coker. Because <laughs> he's going to come and bite him in the butt one more time. But uh, so Ohio State scores a touchdown on that drive after the pass interference. Claret sort of leaps over some guys to score a touchdown. But, uh, you know, I don't know whether you have anything specific to say about the second overtime, but Ohio State then drives in for a touchdown on that one as well. That was, a, that was one of their better drives the entire game. It was the only drive the entire game. Right. It was a, lots of pressure on OSU to deliver a TD on their first possession with that, with that stellar Miami offense on a short field. So you really felt like watching that game, like I'm not going to feel good unless you get a touchdown here. But Claret ends up going in to score on a touchdown and puts Ohio State up on top 31-24 going, going into the second half of the overtime. Yeah, and the the second overtime for Miami. This is the Larry. Co this should be remembered as the Larry Coker drive. It really should. So they run the ball on first first down. They mm -hmm. haven't moved it all game. The last time they got the ball in this position, 
right after the Roscoe Parish punt return, they ran the ball on first down and got stuffed. They do it again. You mentioned, you mentioned Peyton at running back. Again, they're getting him the ball. You know, I guess, I guess they're just like, oh, let's try and slip a run in. But they threw the ball to Winslow in the first overtime, touchdown. They threw the ball to Winslow in the fourth quarter, touchdown. You know, every time they threw it to Winslow, something good happened. Now nah, let's run it, lose a couple of yards. I, I also don't – I didn't remember that on third and 11, like you said, they kept ending up third and 11. Dorsey takes a big hit. Or no, it's on second it down. Was second, it was second and 11. Down. This is the other part All where right. Coker yes. needs to get drilled. By seven. Dorsey's pass incomplete. He was pressured. He was trying to get the ball to Kellen Winslow. And Dorsey may be hurt, Keith. He took a hard hit, and he's having a little trouble getting to his feet, but he's trying, and he can't do it. He can't do it. That brings on Derek Trudup. He's the backup quarterback. Middle linebacker Matt Wilhelm. That's a quarterback's worst nightmare. You take the shot from the player himself, and then he drives you all the way to the ground under 245 pounds. That could be any number of things from a collarbone to a rib injury to a shoulder. So Dorsey gets, I think it was, was it William Joseph who just absolutely came down on Dorsey and, you know, almost looked like he broke his collarbone the way he drove him into the turf. Yeah, he was grabbing and, at that and, and, I mean, Dorsey clearly, clearly injured. And Coker, so now it's third and 11, and, Coker, and Coker brings in the backup quarterback, Derek Crudup, and he completes a third down pass. It's a pretty bad pass, barely, for a couple of yards. But then Coker calls a timeout before fourth down and puts Dorsey back out there. I'm like, why did you call timeout before third down? <laughs> Like, what are you doing? He wanted the full Will Miles treatment. I guess. I'm, I, yeah. I'm just sitting. I mean, I'm. It's so fun when you rewatch these things because you're like yelling at the screen. You know what happens, and you're like, oh my God, how did he do this? Like, how could he have possibly not called a timeout? So, his starting quarterback, who's won 34 straight games, can get his stuff together and get back out there for third and fourth down. Now nah, we'll put in our backup and let him throw a little swing pass. Yeah, which and that ends up working out. Well, Larry Coker's a genius. <laughs> it is funny because then they convert that fourth down to Kellen Winslow. Oh my God, Kellen Winslow. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And, then, and then so they got first and goal from the two. And I, I do have to do have to make a note here. The sweater vest with the tennis shoes really is not aged well for Mister Tressel. Oh, it was a hell of a look in 2002, and I, I would rock it any moment. <laughs> well, part of it I don't, is – I don't think it was a real look in 2002 either. I think when you win a national title, something can become a look. But I think there, it was like, oh, that guy's wearing a sweater vest every time, huh? Well, part of it is he's also skinny. And as a fat man, I cannot rock a I'm sweater right vest. It, it just doesn't work. I think, we're, I think we're wearing the same size. I think we're about <laughs> wearing the same size, yeah. So, I mean, again, I go back to first and goal from the two. What are they going to do on first down? It's Miami under Larry Coach. Hit it off. Hit it off. Oh, my God. Hand it off to Peyton. Get stuffed. <laughs> Second and goal. And th this, again, is one of those plays that you miss. 
or that you don't necessarily remember, Dorsey absolutely misses a wide open guy. It was so open. I mean, little, little play action with the tight end slipping out in the flat, perfectly designed play. I got to think he hits that throw nine out of 10 times, though. Dorsey throwing tight end, missed him. Had him. Eric Winston, uh, the freshman tight end, had gone in there and the double tight end alignment broken clean and clear. And Dorsey missed him. There may be something wrong with Ken Dorsey's arm. After he threw it, he just let it hang by his side. You don't miss a guy this wide open by this much if you're Ken Dorsey. Check out his reaction after the throw. Sure, he's disappointed that he missed his tight end, but I think that shoulder's giving him problems. Even like we could talk about some of the throws in the coverages, but that that play was really shocking. I my personal opinion. I think he just got a little juiced when he saw the tight end. He just zipped it by him. I mean, the tight end fully laid out for it, too, along the guy goal line. Just couldn't get it. Well, again, this is the on and off switch for Dorsey, right? Like, the ball was just piped out there. Instead mm. of just giving it a little bit of air so that his tight end could run underneath it, it wasn't as though the tight end had a guy on his hip and he had to make a perfect throw. No. I mean, the guy was open by three yards. Yeah. I mean, and... even the tight end reacted. He's on the ground doing this afterwards. He could have thrown it four yards behind him. It still would have been a touchdown. <laughs> so, third down and goal from the two-yard line. What, what are we going to do? Let's run Quatrain Hill up the middle. Oh, God. Give it to the fullback. All-time uh, name. Good name. Oh, that is, that is an awesome name, by the way. Yeah. And then fourth down is the play everybody, I think, sort of has ingrained in their mind, where Dorsey's pressured immediately, didn't really read the blitz off the edge, and, and the throw's incomplete. And all of a sudden, you got down Dan Fouch yelling, they did it their way, Keith. <laughs> I didn't catch that quote. I think I'm not going to listen to it. I think I was too busy screaming, running around the room. Even uh, today, today, I, mean, I was screaming. I literally out. was expecting to go, it's because they didn't hold anything back. <laughs> like it was, it was pure water boy for Fouts. Well, the thing about the, the thing about the blitz off the edge is winners win, Will. Oh, and you'll God. learn that sometime. So winners win. And C. Grant comes off the edge untouched, which was just, even when you were watching it live, was just shocking to see how untouched he really was. Because he was right back in Dorsey's face immediately, grabs Dorsey by the left arm, and you almost felt like Dorsey was going to somehow, when he popped that ball up, he tried to throw it. You felt like he was going to find Winslow or Johnson or something like that for a second. But then you quickly realize it's going into three white shirts. Ohio State bats the ball down. First national title since Woody Hayes in 1968. And sweater vests are a thing now. Oh, so, Fats, they did it their way. Their way included 145 rushing yards, 81 from Krenzel. 122 passing yards, of which 57 was on the pass to Gamble. That didn't turn into points. They had 33% completion percentage, 7 of 21. No actual real drives that actually turned into points that were longer than like 26 yards. Three of three on fumble recoveries and an immediate forced fumble after an interception in the end zone. Um, yeah. you know, Sounds like I, 2002 Buckeye football. I mean, that, that's how you beat Purdue seven to six in overtime or whatever the hell that game was. But <laughs> so to win a national championship and go back I, again, like you, this game is considered a classic because of all the things that happened. But wow, is it weird to watch a team win a game that way? It was just, I mean, just shows how different football is today, too. You, you don't feel like it was that long ago in some respects, but then in other respects, just neither team at the highest level is playing anything what looks like football today. Uh, so, I mean, if we get to the takeaways, I mean, the call was a tough one, right? 
And but that that to me wasn't why Miami lost the game. And and I do think Miami lost the game because I am fully convinced that the Hurricanes were the better team. Um, it doesn't really matter. I mean, that, that's but that is why the PI call was such a big deal because it sort of even the scales in a game where Miami was probably um, was probably the more talented team. The other big takeaway I have is that late flags really suck because then we're not talking about who the better team is or who, you know, this is one of those things where if, if uh, you know, a team with lower recruiting wins, you got to give the coach credit. I hope you don't sit there and go, Oh, that team with the better players just completely blew it. But the late flag really does in some instances devalue what Ohio state did here, which was take a team that did not have as much firepower as Miami and still win the game. Yeah, and you see, you see that capitalized off mistakes, though. They just really – Miami made a lot of mistakes that day. You play that game ten times, I'm not sure how much Ohio State wins, but that doesn't matter. That's what's beautiful about college football. And my, my takeaways were big picture. John Cooper did a great job laying the foundation in the 90s, but he couldn't get past the Michigan hump. But this was a gritty team in 2002. Like, Ohio State – it really took Ohio State to another level and gave them some national credibility to, to finally kind of win one. I mean, when you're talking about not winning a title since 1968, that's a pretty big deal on the recruiting trail, I have to think. But you, you win one, you get back on it. They end up making BCS title games, even though it was ugly in 07 against Florida, 08 against LSU. And those teams are arguably better than the 2002 team. The teams got better when Trussell was, was there in Columbus. But he mentioned in the, in the trophy ceremony that there were only 13 seniors on that team. So you really sense that Trestle was building something at the time. But so it's a real, you can mark it as a turning point for Ohio State into where they are today almost. And it was a turning point for the Miami program as well. You know, you're built up by Butch Davis and they, they couldn't sustain the success under Coker. And they've kind of been, they've kind of been in that same spot. They haven't been back in the national title picture since. Well, Al Golden had a little bit to do with that, but oh, well, you could go a few few coaches deep now. Randy Shannon. So, yeah. I mean, my big picture. I, I, this is the highest point of the Trestle era. You know, we didn't know it, but Urban Meyer was about to dust him in 2006, and the SEC takeover was about to begin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but Trestle did set a standard of beating Michigan that still continues to this day at Ohio State. Hugely um, important. One thing I think is interesting is the SEC takeover was going to begin in 2006 with Florida. But Georgia actually would have probably been in this game if not for losing to Ron Zook's Florida team 20 to 13 earlier in the year. So as a, as a Florida homer, I have to bring up the fact that one more example of Mark Richt not living up to what he needed to do at Georgia, um, Kirby smarting his way to an SEC title, but not being able to convert it into a national title. Oof. Oof. Just keep reminding them. Keep reminding them. <laughs> so biggest what if. What's your biggest what if in the game? So my biggest what if of the game – I mean, it has to be. What if the what if the refs called that pass interference on uh, when they should have? Would the game have been over, Will? But you know, that's my biggest what if of the game. <laughs> I I gotta think. What if though? What if Willis McGahee uh, was around for like everything kind of followed? But what if Willis McGahee was on like first and goal from the one? Willis McGahee's in the game. You think they're not popping it in the end zone in the second overtime? Yeah. The the what if I had was the fourth and fourteen. What if you bring pressure? Um, you know, that, that's the one where if I'm Miami, you know, yeah, I'm complaining about the pass interference, but as a defensive back, I'm not going to bed because of the fourth and 14. Um, I do give honorable mention to that near pick six because that was then followed up by the McGahee knee injury. Mm-hmm. And it's always possible that Doss catches that 
catches that interception and then falls or goes out of bounds or something like that. And Ohio State couldn't move the ball. So maybe they're not up by 10 if he makes that interception, but you don't get the screen pass out to McGahee. You don't get that knee injury. And, and then the game continues uh, sort of sort of the way it goes. So the Urban Meyer indigestion moment of the game sponsored by Papa John's. Come on, Papa John's. Call us and sponsor us. So, um, you know, for me, it's, it's the conservative approach by Larry Coker in particular after Parrish's punt return, but really all the times they had the opportunity to be aggressive, but instead chose to be conservative and, and just really cost Miami the game. I mean, you know, you could look at it and say, Oh, the pass interference, the fourth and 14, all the different things that happened during the game where like the actual game would have given you indigestion. But if I'm a Miami fan, the thing that gives me the indigestion is, is the Larry Coker experience in this one. I, I think the indigestion comes from the turnovers. And I'm going to highlight one in particular that doesn't get enough run is that Roscoe Parrish fumble in the fourth quarter. They gave the Buckeyes back the ball back with five minutes left and uh, let them melt another few minutes of clock off. That was a huge, huge play. Uh, so the Gary Danielson, how long until you mute the commentators award? You know, you said you had a com you had some commentary on fouts. I, I, I want to hear what this you is got. it. This is it. My, 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 uh, D Gary Danielson, uh, how long until you meet the commentators award goes to Dan Fouts for screaming bad call after the Miami PA and PI in overtime. He was technically a right, but shut up and let the folks enjoy this, Dan. <laughs> Fouts was in rare form between <laughs> saying, Hey, if you're a winner, you can, you're NFL material. And you know, at what, on the play where and to open up the second half where McGay, he just sort of folded he's and, and didn't get the first down. He's like, Oh, it doesn't look like he really uh, like, that's sort of weird that he wasn't able to get the first down as opposed to just being like, yeah, he didn't lower his shoulder there. Like, <laughs> and then to have the cop, I mean, and then to have McGay, he hurt later, you know, you're sitting there going, Oh, well maybe that's why he didn't want to get hit. But um, you know, he clearly just sort of folded up and fell down and Fouts is like, Oh, you know, kind of slipped there. And it's like, no, no, he didn't. <laughs> But that call. So the the non-political Donald Trump lies we tell ourselves. Non-political. Uh, what, what, what do you got here? The PI cost us the game. The pass interference call cost us the game. Miami, yes, it sucked. It was a bad break. But man, the Canes left a lot on the table throughout the game. You got to look at the plays on the field, and I think this was a talented team, twelve point favorite coming in. They really shouldn't they, – it shouldn't have been this close to where you should have had to rely on a pass interference call anyway. I mean, I can remember a lot of trash talk leading up to the game. At one point, there, the Miami players were talking about, yeah, we got this running back that runs scout team uh, named Frank Gore who's better than Maurice Claret. And I'm like, Psh, this is Frank Gore guy. Never heard of him. Like, they think their scout team running back's better than Maurice Claret? Frank Gore. Frank Gore actually might have turned out to be better than Maurice Claret. <laughs> <laughs> maybe they should add him in there instead of Peyton. So, you know, the lies we tell ourselves here, I think it's Miami fans who tell themselves they should have won the game, but the reality is they didn't come to play and Ohio state hit them in the mouth. Five turnovers is inexcusable, especially for a team that's that loaded with NFL level talent. And, and so I don't think it's a surprise that the team fell apart under Coker, but you know, you, you can sit there and say, well, if this played gone this way, if this played gone this way, five turnovers, when you turn the ball over five times, you deserve what you get. And at the end of the day, part of that is Ohio State's defense making it happen. But part of it, I mean, you know, the intercept, like the, the, the parish fumble was caused by a hit from the safety. The um, fumble by, 
by Taylor was a really good play by Claret, though obviously mm-hmm. I think Taylor can't give that one up. The fumble by Dorsey, you know, he gets hit from behind. Um, the offensive lineman gets beat. Yeah, but the two interceptions yeah. were awful. Yeah. And, and again, you still – even when you get hit from behind as a quarterback, you can't let that go. So five turnovers, a lot of, a lot of conservatism on offense. Um, I don't think Miami deserved to win the game. My- I think Ohio State deserved to win the game. I think Miami's a better team, but I think Ohio State deserved to win the game. Those two might have been connected, though, with the amount of turnovers late in the game. Coker's probably just like, oh, let's hold on to the ball. Let's hold on to the ball. Puckered up. Got puckered yeah, a little tight. So, so the, the Alan Covert Award, so that's the guy who's in all of the Adam Sandler movies. Um, who you got for that one? Michael Jenkins, wide receiver at Ohio State. Clutch, clutch fourth down route on that fourth and 14. I know we keep talking about that fourth and 14 play, but I think that's the actual play of the game. And uh, I, we mentioned this, I think we mentioned this earlier, but Krenzo only completed seven passes on the night. Four of them were to Michael Jenkins. Were the other three to gamble? One was the gamble and two, uh, I want to say. The gamble had two catches. So he had one more. Gamble had two. Okay. Then it was, uh, uh, damn, I'm, I'm blanking on his name. Chris Vance had one. Oh, Why you, that's the throwback name for Buckeye fans right there. Chris Vance. So my Allen covert award winner is Chris Gamble. Um, you know, obviously went on to the NFL, but still he the was man. all over the field. And I yep. forgot that he played DB and wide receiver. I remember yep. him being a DB. I don't remember him being the wide receiver and the kick returner for the Buckeyes. And, you know, we all remember Desmond Howard for Michigan, but, but Gamble, you know, it's interesting. Howard wins the Heisman, but Gamble ends up being the better DB or the better player, at least in the NFL. Um, and, and being able to play both DB and wide receiver and do it full time. Right. He wasn't like Desmond Howard was sort of a kick returner who masqueraded on offense. Um, or what's yeah, Woodson. I'm sorry. Charles Woodson, Woodson. Charles yeah. Woodson masqueraded on masqueraded on offense. But you think yeah. about Gamble, he was full-time player, both sides, right? Yeah, he, he was starting with the Penn State game. He actually started on, on defense. So it was like from November on, he was a full-time starter on both sides of the ball. And uh, Trestle said he would go up to Gamble. I mean, Gamble was playing like 110, 120 plays. He'd go up to him. He'd be like, hey, man, you all right? And, he, and Gamble would just go, I'm straight, coach, just the whole time. <laughs> so it's like the guy made play after play in the season for Ohio State in, in, in tight games and really was an important factor for the Buckeyes winning the national title. And I can't believe I confused Desmond Howard with Charles Woodson. Because <laughs> Woodson was a really good player at the NFL, too. But, Howard, uh, Howard did the Heisman pose. Yeah, well, you know, all those Michigan guys sort of sort of um, meld together because, you know, they never really actually win anything. But um, so to wrap this up, I, one thing I think is interesting is, I, I, you know, for my site, Read and Reaction, I've got a site called Yards Above Replacement. And the idea is to try to factor in a quarterback's running ability and zero is considered average one is considered really good and then anything negative is considered pretty bad um, especially as you start approaching negative one and then if you're if you're up in the two or three range you're really elite Krenzel was not elite in this game he only had 122 yards we mentioned he was 7 to 21 Dorsey had 296 yards passing but the 80 yards rushing on 19 attempts took his yards above replacement for Krenzel to 0.65, so well above average. Dorsey was actually negative 0.73 because he threw for 296 yards but took him 43 attempts. And then he was sacked four times for, for 19 yards losses, and those sacks were huge throughout the game. And, and, you know, so from the standpoint of when you say, oh, Dorsey played better than Krenzel, that's not true. When you look at the turnovers, when you look at the yardage on the ground, Krenzel was much, much better. Physical runner, too. 
Like you, I, I, he was a better runner than I recall. Like watching that game, he had, he took some big hits. Uh, you know, I mentioned the one from Sean Taylor, but let me ask something about that stat. Where would someone like uh, Cam Newton or Tim Tebow, like not to put you on the spot here, but like where, like are those guys up in the twos on that yeah, stat? T- Just trying yeah. to understand that a little better. Yeah, Tebow would have been around two. Yeah. Newton in his one year at Auburn, I think, was up around three. Um, and and his offenses have gotten better. So the the way it works is that you normalize it against how quarterbacks run. So back in 1988 with Tony Rice, who's running for five yards a carry and the average quarterback is running for like a half a yard a carry. He obviously, every time rice runs the ball, um, you know, it's four and a half yards more than one of his contemporaries would get. And so he was up in that two or three range, the, the years that Notre Dame was winning national titles back in 88. Um, and so that, that's sort of the goal is to try to characterize that sort of stuff. So it's actually really interesting because if you look back at 2001 with Rex Grossman and Eric Crouch, where you've got Crouch running the option offense at Nebraska mm-hmm. and Grossman running the fun and gun with Florida, you can really sort of compare those guys two seasons and how good they were. And it, it's interesting. They're actually really close when you start looking at that particular stat. Yeah, it gives that extra value to the, the runners on that. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the, the other thing from a wrap-up perspective here is the, the grin on your face talking about Ohio State winning a national <laughs> title is really just sickening. I'm not sure I can do this podcast just, with you anymore. I'm feeding off your hate. That's what it is. It's like when we talk about Florida, we're like, great point. Good point. I'm happy about that too. Yeah, they did beat Georgia. You're right. But like this, there's a little bit of rivalry. So I think it's going to spice up the podcast a little bit. And I think it's going to be a positive. Maybe one of these times I can learn to be a Virginia Tech hater and we can talk about like Michael Vick or something like that or like some Michael Vick game or something like that. We can uh, we can reverse roles or something. I don't know. God, Ohio State sucks. All right. So mad too. I'd be (laughs) mad watching that game too. But I mean, it really shouldn't have been in overtime. (laughs) I think I don't want to keep bringing it up. But oh, man, you're such a homer. All right. Next time we look way back to 2017 for Clemson versus Alabama in the national championship. Or as it's better known, the seventh year of Hunter Renfro's nine year stead at Clemson. So you got any quick thoughts about that game? Uh, Nick Saban lost a football game. That doesn't happen very much. And uh, just just really how good Deshaun Watson was. You don't watch, typically, if you're invested in the SEC, you don't watch a lot of Clemson football unless they're playing in a big game. So you got to miss a lot of his, you know, solid performances. But, like, at that game, man, he looked – he was spectacular in that game. I just remember walking away from that being like, damn, that's pretty impressive. I, I was not expecting Clemson to beat Alabama that night. It turns out having elite quarterback play, especially in the uh, late 2000s, really matters when it comes to comes to winning titles. Shocking. <laughs> Shocking. But in the meantime, 7 for 21 will get you a national title in 2002. Oh, good God. All right. Well, that's co-host Nick Knudsen. You can find Nick on Twitter at Nick Knudsen FB, writing at Read and Reaction, or his website, AmericanFootballStories.com. My name's Will Miles. You can find me on Twitter at WillMilesSEC or at my website, ReadingReaction.com. Remember to like and subscribe on YouTube. Leave iTunes reviews. Support us on Patreon by following the link in the show notes. This has been 2020 Hindsight. See you next time.